0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me once again and turn to Romans chapter 8. And as you make your way to Romans chapter 8, would you stand with me uh, for the reading of God's holy word. We'll be reading this morning beginning in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified let's pray together father as we come face to face with your word once again. I ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, it is no secret that these are doctrinal matters that some people struggle with, not only today, but throughout church history. And so, Lord, we are uh, asking for your Holy Spirit to come mercifully, to come uh, graciously, to instruct us to uh, turn the heart of the skeptic, to challenge the heart of the unbelieving, and to also bolster the assurance of all of your elect. Lord, I pray that we would uh, come to your word this morning eagerly and expectantly and submissively, all for the great namesake of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this is part two of a message that we began last week that we entitled the golden chain of salvation my prayer is that you would see the golden chain laid out before you and that this golden chain would both affirm your salvation and confirm your salvation so it's a twofold goal this morning Confirm your salvation and affirm your salvation. And my prayer is that this so-called golden chain of salvation, which is what has been called, verses 29 and 30, throughout church history, since the days of the Reformation, that this study would really launch you forward in your Christian life, that you would be set free in many ways. Last week, we laid the groundwork for the golden chain of salvation by examining what I refer to as the infrastructure of sovereign grace, and we looked at several benefits of approaching this subject in this way, and one of the benefits that we looked at is that we are able to define key terminology. And so this morning, for the benefit of those of you who didn't have a chance to be with us and for those of you who were with us who may need a good solid review, I want to briefly review the words we looked at last week and then we'll move forward uh, to continue our study together. And one of the the things that happens is when you preach with a paper Bible is a fan does me no good whatsoever. So I'm going to turn off the fan so my pages don't turn. As we examine the golden chain of salvation, we begin back in verse 29, and I'm reading from the English, English Standard uh, Version, and you will read along beginning in verse 29, and Paul the Apostle says, For those whom he foreknew. If you were with us last week, you'll recall that I had you highlight that word, and so those of you who are joining us for the first time this week, I would encourage you to to highlight that word, underline that word for new. Indeed, that is the first link, that is the first link in what we're calling the golden chain of salvation. The word translated for new or foreknowledge we saw last week means to foreknow. Personally, to foreknow personally. It means to select in advance. Now, we drove home the point last week that God possesses definite, exhaustive foreknowledge. That's the way theologians describe it. And that's a fancy way of saying that God has perfect and comprehensive knowledge of everything in eternity past, perfect and exhaustive foreknowledge of everything in the present, and he has perfect and definitive foreknowledge of everything in the future. Over the years, I'd like to describe it this way, especially for young people so they can understand it, is because God is a God who possesses exhaustive foreknowledge, he knows what you will have for breakfast tomorrow. Now, some of you are, are very sharp, you're very slick, and you'll try to play these games, and you'll say things like, well, I don't have breakfast. Well, that's fine. God knows that you will not have breakfast, right? He knows everything about your lives. He knows everything about the free choices that you will make. Indeed, his foreknowledge is absolutely comprehensive. But we, we pressed forward as we can agree that God possesses definitive, exhaustive foreknowledge. And we learned that foreknowledge in the context of Romans chapter 8 goes much, much deeper than mere foreknowledge into future events. Because the word in this context means foreloved. I, I, I wish you could be a fly on the wall for the conversations that I had last week, for the emails and the text messages that I received last week, and for all that I was able to hear from the attenders and the members at Christ Fellowship around this word, foreknowledge. Because that became a, 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 a brand new theological nugget for some of you when you learned that when the scriptures say in Romans chapter 8:29 that he foreknew, he does more than merely know what will happen; he foreloves us. And the response that I got was simply overwhelming. It was breathtaking especially from one text message that I got from a college graduate. It, it made my whole week to hear my friend say to me that, that this theological reality that God in eternity past set his affection on him, that he loved him. You see, this is a game changer. This is a game changer that that God not only knows you in eternity past, before you were born, before your parents were born, before your grandparents were born, take it back as far as you want to go. You have to go all the way to eternity past. Before the cosmos were created, God set his affection on you. I submit this to you, that when you see this word in its biblical context and confess that it means for loved, your Christian life can only change for the better. God not only knew about you in eternity past, he loved you passionately with an everlasting love. God not only knew you in eternity past, he set his affection upon you in eternity past. And we need to remember this, he chose you in eternity past. He predestined you in eternity past. And it is no secret that when we come to the word predestined, that becomes a controversial word. And as I've grown in my faith and as I've studied the word of God, it has become very perplexing to me when we realize that a lot of people in the church struggle with the doctrine of predestination and it should not be so and here's the reason why if you believe that you're totally depraved if you believe that your 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 will has been incapacitated by the fall if you believe that you're dead in your trespasses and sins you are lost you are without hope you are without God here's what you will do you will beg God for predestination to be true because if I'm, if I'm six feet under, if I'm at the bottom of the ocean with a straight jacket on with duct tape over my mouth and over my nose and over my eyes and over my ears, I have no desire for God. My only hope is that God forloves me and predestines me. So we praise the triune God for the doctrine of predestination. That's the next word in verse 29. Look at it with me and I would encourage you to highlight that as well. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We saw the definition of this word translated predestined or the theological notion of predestination. It simply means to predetermine. It means to determine something ahead of time or before its occurrence. It means to foreordain. It means to, to appoint. We looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 that say, Even as He chose us in Him. That is, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, people over the years have asked me who wrestle with this matter, and even those who don't wrestle, but have a very legitimate question. Why did God choose me? Why did He choose me but pass over others? And for years and years, I always gave the most humble response I knew, and I went something like this, I I don't know. I just don't know why He chose you, but didn't choose your neighbor. Why did he choose Tom, but he passed over someone else? And I have since given up the humble response. Hopefully the response is still humble. But in the context of Ephesians 1, we find our answer. It says this, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That is what we would call a loaded statement. So now when someone asks me, why did God predestine me but not someone else? Why did he choose me but pass over someone else? The answer is because he loved you with an everlasting love. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him... We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. When you read in Romans 8.29 that for those whom God foreknew, He also predestined, remember this, get rid of the thought if you have been taught this way that God looked down the tunnel of time and on the basis of foreseen faith, He chose you. Rather, think of it this way, that in eternity past, God foreloved you, and on the basis of His passionate, white-hot love for you, He chose you. I couldn't help myself but to turn to one of the great documents of the Christian faith that was penned in 1618 and 1619 called the Canons of Dort. And in the, the, the pages of the Canon of Dort, we read these very important words. This is Article 9 and the heading is election not based on foreseen faith. And it's perplexing to me why a a pivotal doctrine of the 17th century that has the heading, election not based on foreseen faith, why that, really, I want to say the vast majority. That might be overstating it, but I, I, I can say it this way. Many, many evangelical Christians have refused to pay attention to this statement. It reads as follows. This election is not based on foreseen faith. The obedience of faith holiness, or in any other good quality of disposition as a cause or condition in man required for being chosen, but men are chosen to faith, the obedience of faith, holiness, and so on. Here's the key. Election, therefore, is the fountain of every saving good from which flow faith, holiness, and other saving gifts, and finally, eternal life itself as its fruit and effects. This the apostle teaches when he says he chose us, not because we were, but that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so we see that predestination is not based on foreseen faith. It's based on the idea that God loves us in eternity past. It's not based on foreknowledge. Predestination is, is absolutely unconditional. Now, closely related to this word predestination, if you go back to verse 29, you see the first keyword for new. The second keyword is predestined. That's the second link in the golden chain. I want to take our study just a, a, a tad bit deeper and wrestle with the word election. Now, to be intellectually honest, the word election is not in this text. But whenever we speak of predestination, we always want to turn our mind to this word election. Here's a brief definition. And it sounds like predestination. It means to choose. It means to elect. It means to decide for. Early on in my Christian life, I shouldn't say not so early, my first year of seminary, The very first systematic theology that I ever read, now it has become a hobby, right? Each year I try to read a different systematic theology. The very first one I read, and it is one of the top five that I've ever read in my life, by Louis Burkhoff. He says this of election. Election is that eternal act of God whereby He in His sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them chooses a certain number of people to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. That's a book that was published in 1939. Now move forward in 1994 when Wayne Gruden publishes his excellent work, Systematic Theology. He says, quote, "...election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved." not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. I want to show you where this doctrine of election surfaces in Scripture. I'm only going to give you four or five passages, but know there are, are tons of passages that help to bolster the case for the doctrine of election. Begin in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. The word of God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, but that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Who did God choose in redemptive history in the days of the Old Testament? He did not choose the Babylonians. He did not choose the Hittites. He did not choose any of those other people groups with the exception of Israel. You ever look at a a map, try to find Israel on a map? You see these massive countries like Iran, for instance, right? We hear a lot about Iran in the news. My belief is we're going to hear more in the coming days about Iran. But you look for Israel, it's this little dot in the Middle East. And what does God do? He sets his affection on Israel. Psalm chapter 135, verse 4 says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. So, my friends, this speaks to the doctrine of election, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. A brief theological explanation. Three things in particular. Realize that in every case, election is to perform a task, a specific function. And so a few examples in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Paul the Apostle says, Put on then as God's chosen ones. Who are God's chosen ones? Those are all those who are numbered among the elect. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You must also forgive. And so we see there is a task. And here in this passage, only two verses, those who are numbered among the elect, those who are the elect of God, we have some things to carry out. We have We have commands that we are are to obey. We are to submit to the word of God. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, here's the task, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, I'm one of those liberal Christians. That one always gets me. I'm a liberal Christian. And here's the translation. You ready? You heard it here first. I don't need to obey Jesus. I'm a liberal Christian. Would you turn with me to the book of Luke just for a moment? Because this is a message for all our liberal and even Maybe more penetratingly uh, progressive Christian friends. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And if this is a new one for you, uh, this is worth highlighting and this is worth memorizing and remember it for the rest of your days. For all our liberal Christian friends and for everyone here this morning. Verse 46 Jesus says, Why do you call me? Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you. Amen? May I take it one step further? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but refuse to believe my word and submit to my word and believe these great doctrines that flow forth from the word of God? In every case, election is to perform a task. When God chose you in eternity past, he had some very important tasks that you would fulfill. Number two, election is a sovereign act of God. Election is a sovereign act of God. In First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God. And that, that, that phrase should explode with meaning for you because it's not mere love. This is love that began in eternity past. How would you explain eternity past to a four-year-old? Well, little Johnny, it was a long time ago. Before mommy? Yes, before mommy. It was a long time ago. It was before creation that we know, Paul says, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. And so one writer says, the goal of God in election, and I want you to pay close attention to this because if you, like me, early in my Christian journey, struggled with the doctrine of predestination and election, by the way, I hated it. I was one of those big free will guys. Are you a free will guy? If you are, I can relate to you. But listen to what this author says. The goal of God in election is the elimination of all human pride, all self-reliance, all boasting in man. Positively, his goal is that boasting would be in the Lord. And so I hope when you hear the doctrine of predestination and election from this pulpit, what you'll hear is we are boasting in the Lord. Number three, I want you to see that the elect belong to God. The elect belong to God. They are his possession. May we as Bible-believing Christians never utter the words, it's my body and I'll do with my body as I please. The elect belong to God. They are his possession. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Abraham became the special possession of the triune God. One writer says another way of talking about his choosing is to say that God knew, K-N-E-W, he knew Abraham in the sense of setting his special attention on Abraham and acknowledging him as his own possession. And so Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 20, says, "The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people." of his own inheritance as you are this day. And that language should sound very familiar to you as now you turn your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where the apostle Peter says, you are a chosen race. And now it's interesting, Peter is talking to both Jews and those who are Gentiles who have been chosen by God. You are a chosen race That's why I don't have any problem standing before the barista at Starbucks when she says, How are how, how, how you doing? And my response is, Better than I deserve. Why could I say that? And why should you say that? Because there was a day when I didn't have mercy, but now I have mercy. Here's what I deserve I deserve to go to hell. Here's what you deserve. You deserve to go to hell. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received the mercy of God. And so think about the links on the golden chain. We, we begin in verse 29. For new is link number one. Predestined is link number two. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the, that, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 the next word to highlight. May I encourage you to highlight the word called. If you're reading in the English Standard, it's, and those whom he predestined, that's review, he also called. Now last week, my, my goal is to help you understand foreknowledge in a biblical sense, that foreknowledge is more than mere foresight into the future, rather it's he foreloved you. When we look at this word called, at least from my perspective, this was the game changer for me. And I never anticipated that this little, this little tiny word called would be the word that would shift me from being a card-carrying Arminian to being a passionate Calvinist. Are you allowed to say that? The word Called. I want to have you turn in your Bibles to several passages with me. First, notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 13. And let's let your fingers do the walking if you would and let's I want to hear those pages turning or the iPad flicking, right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. Listen to what Paul says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, that should sound familiar, to be the first fruits, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here we go. To this, he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look over also at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Here the Apostle Paul is going to use this word call once again. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. Drop down to verse 9. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. One other you don't need to turn to is in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Paul says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of, Many witnesses. Now, go back if you would to our text to Romans chapter 8 and drop down, talk about a lot of review, verse 28. Notice, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called now some of you are probably scratching your head right now saying where is he going with this because I don't have my phone with me I always leave it right so it doesn't bug me while I preach you don't want to get a call during the message right but if I could illustrate, if I were to put in a call to Justin to ask him a question, you would kind of think like that that's a fairly passive thing, right? Like like ding, ding, ding. Hello? Hi Justin, it's Pastor Dave. How are you? Oh good. What are you doing next weekend? You want to go golfing? Oh sure, I'd love to. I remember I just wiped you the last time we went, and that's true, right, Justin? Noah too, right? Wiped me. Okay, we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Click. And so it's like the call. We need to take that kind of a call out of our heads and pay close attention to the, the biblical and the theological meaning of call. You see, in each of the verses that I just cited, the Greek term kaleo is utilized, which is translated as called. And the word here, Are you ready for just the, this is the thing I I just want to have you go home with excited about. It means to call by name. That might not do it for you, but here's the one that's going to do it for you. The call in every one of these passages, and most notably Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30, it means divine summons. That didn't do anything. Let me try it again. It means divine summons. When God calls you, he ushers forth a divine summons and he says, CJ and Megan, I call you. There we go. It's not just like, okay, sure. I'd love to meet you at Raspberry Ridge. That's a great call, right? The example of Justin and I. But when God calls you, what happens? Golden chain, link number one. He forloves you. He predestines you, link number two. And on that basis, he calls you. This is a divine summons. When I'm in eighth grade, which is a long time ago, if I received a call from the office at my school and said Davy you need to come to the office you have someone who has called you I think I'm in trouble I go to the office the phone is laying on the principal's desk and he gives me the phone and I pick up the phone and in 8th grade the voice on the other end says is this Davy Steele yes This is President Ronald Reagan. I'm summoning you to the White House. My response? President Reagan, I'm going to use my free will to say no. (laughs) May I be so crass to say what kind of a fool would say no to that invitation? This is the divine call in Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. It is a divine summons, not given by my favorite president. It is a divine summons ushered forth from God the Father who is holy, holy, holy. A brief explanation of the call. Sometimes I tell people, as I did yesterday at the memorial service that we had for a gentleman who attended this church, um, help me, over 30 years ago, I think would be safe to say. And as I talked to some people, they would ask me, well, Christ Fellowship, what kind of a church is this? And I'd say very proudly, it's a Baptist church. I like to tell people, if you cut my finger, the first thing you see is blood, and the second thing you see is not denominational not Presbyterian, not Methodist, I bleed Baptist. Amen? And so since I bleed Baptist, I want to read to you a section from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And for those of you who were raised in the Reformed tradition, those of you who cut your teeth on the Westminster Confession of Faith, as did I as well, you need to realize that what I'm going to read from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith is basically copied from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was penned in 1647. And the reason I want to give that brief history lesson is this. Oftentimes, I will talk about the doctrine of predestination and the response goes something like this. Oh, that's, that's a reformed belief. Oh, that's what what the crazy Presbyterians believe. Well, that is what the crazy Presbyterians believe, but so do we, right? In 1689, when the Baptist Confession of Faith was panned, these words uh, flowed forth from their pens: Those whom God hath predestined unto life... He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely are being made willing by His grace. Now the statement continues, and I have not included this in your notes, but it's equally as important. It says, the effectual call... "...is of God's free and special grace of alone, alone rather, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled..." To answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. Now, that's something you might, you might need to read again several times, but I would submit this to you that those two paragraphs contain, it's as if we approach this treasure chest and we open the treasure chest and we just started throwing up diamonds and jewels and and nuggets of gold. That's exactly what's happening here. Move now with me to the cause of the call. Very simply, the cause of the call is this, God's foreordination or His foreloving and electing love or predestination. That's the cause of the call that we've already looked at. Last week as we closed, I read this passage in 2 Timothy 1, nine, that says that God saved us and called us. So CJ and Megan, since I used you in the example, CJ and Megan, I call you. Think of that now. God called you, he summoned you, To a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. One more subcategory the effectiveness of the call. Some of you know in premarital counseling, I should say, those of you that have, if you're younger and you were counseled by Dreen and myself in premarital counseling, one of the things that we drive home, and Kirk and Brenna, you remember this. One of the things we drive home is, this is really for the benefit of the man, right? Because the women, they already have this one figured out. They got it down pat. But the men, they need to remember this, this immutable law that is etched into the fabric of the universe. It goes something like this. Women have the prerogative to change their minds. So the women are just all smiling like, yeah, you got that right, Pastor. Amen and amen. And for the men, you're like, what? Say that again? Women have the prerogative to change their minds. Let me make this really clear. My wife and I are in the car, and I say, honey, what do you feel like tonight? The refrigerator's empty. You want to go to dinner? Yep, we hop in the car. Where would you like to go? I'd like to go to Olive Garden. This is the way I'm wired. When my wife suggests a restaurant like Olive Garden, I start to... In my mind, like what I'm going to get, right? So I've got the, the exact menu item ready. And for me, on this date, it's going to be all you can eat breadsticks and soup and salad, right? You do know my name's Van Steele, right? That's what Chris calls me. Right? Cheapest thing on the menu, right? So I've got it in my mind. So we, we make our way to Olive Garden and we get to that intersection right there. And my wife says, You know, honey, and I know it's coming. Ah, I don't really feel like Olive Garden. I just feel like, uh, let's just go to Taco Time. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking of that verse in Ephesians 5, right? (laughs) About women submitting to their husbands. (laughs) And guys, that doesn't work at this point, okay? It doesn't work at all because when my wife wants to go to Taco Time instead of Olive Garden, guess what? We're going to Taco Time instead of Olive Garden. So women have the prerogative to change their mind. All that to say this, in theology, and if you're a Christian, you're a theologian. You know that by now. If you're a Christian, you're a theologian. Theologians have the prerogative to make distinctions. And the distinction that I'm referring to here is there is a distinction we make in reference to calling, Theologians distinguish between what they refer to to as the general call and the effectual call. The Puritans call it the efficacious call, which I rather like. But for our purposes, we'll refer to the two calls as the general call and the effectual call. Number one, the general call. The general call, you see, is the universal offer of God's grace to sinners. And so right now... As I preach to you, you would refer to this as the general call. It is for every converted and every unconverted person. The general or the external call tells sinners what they must do in order to be saved. And they, as a result, stand without excuse for failing to believe the gospel. Now, the general call, to make it very clear, is for every person. As a preacher of the gospel, my responsibility, every time I receive the opportunity, I usher forth the general call. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you have that same responsibility. You're a friend at work. You're a friend on the football team or the basketball team or the volleyball team. An opportunity arises and you're thinking to yourself, should I share the gospel? The answer is yes. Share the gospel and usher forth the general call. Hold your finger in Romans 8 and go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. There's a little verse tucked away in Matthew, chapter 22, verse 14 that is super, super important that speaks to this issue. And the text says this, for many are called, and we know what that word means, it means a divine summons. CJ and Megan, every time people see the word called, now they're going to think, that's the Sanborn word, right? I have no idea why I chose you. I just did. You're just, you two are so good looking sitting back there, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is a divine summons. Many are called, but few are chosen. The general call is the first part of the verse. Many are called. That is to say, everyone has an opportunity to hear the gospel, but the latter part of the verse, but few are chosen, that is what theologians refer to as the effectual call, which has several components. The effectual call is the call of God the Father that brings the sinner to faith. Just for fun, raise your hand if you remember the day you became a Christian. You kind of remember where you were and what was going on and you heard the gospel and some of you are like my professor, Cal Blom, who thought to yourself, man, why is that the first time that the pastor preached that message? And if you're like my professor, Cal Blom, you would probably heard the message dozens, maybe hundreds of times, but it wasn't until that moment, that time, that little moment in history when you believed what happened that was the effectual call of god the father that brought you to the place of saving faith the puritan thomas watson says it like this by this call and he's referring to the effectual call the heart is renewed and the will the will is effectually drawn to embrace christ Notice secondly, the effectual call is powerful and Watson's words make reference to that. He continues, the effectual call is mighty and powerful. God puts forth a divine energy, nay, a kind of omnipotence. It is such a powerful call that the will of man, listen, has no power to effectually resist. That is to say, if God calls you, you will come. Everyone got that. If God calls you, you will come. It's what we refer to as irresistible grace, the effectual call that leads to the third subpoint, that the effectual call is guaranteed. And if logic doesn't do it for you, if if biblical logic doesn't do it for you, let me share this story from John chapter eleven. Jesus said to the woman. This is the story concerning Lazarus. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes, and what did he see? A corpse. And Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you have heard from me. You have to imagine the people in this setting, they were disappointed that Jesus took so long to get there and i think me knowing myself how i'm wired if i would have been disappointed that jesus kind of took his time to get to lazarus tomb when jesus prays father i thank you that you have heard me i'm thinking to myself are are, are you kidding me pick up the pace right He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Now I think I'm even more irritated. I'm like, come on, what's going on? When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And if you know your Bible well, you know what happened is that Lazarus utilized his free will. <laughs> so glad that you're laughing. What do we know about Lazarus? He was deader than a doornail. And so when Jesus ushers forth, think Sandborns, when he ushers forth the divine call and says, Lazarus, come out what does lazarus do he comes out and so when when the god of the universe issues forth a divine call that divine call is absolutely and unmistakably guaranteed every unconverted sinner is dead in sin unable and unwilling to come to god apart from his enabling grace and so when elect sinners like lazarus hear the call of God, they are raised to life powerfully. John Piper says effectual means that the call itself effects what it demands, namely faith. Those who are called have their eyes opened by the sovereign creative power of God so they no longer see the cross as foolishness but the power and the wisdom of God. The effectual call is the miracle of having our blindness removed. Were it not for the effectual call of God in my life and what came behind the call? Predestination. What became behind predestination? for loving were it not for that I would not be standing here right now I would still be dead in my trespasses and sins there's a final point that's not in your notes and frankly I can't remember if it's on the screen or not but it's an important one and that the effectual call is only given to the elect there it is many are called but few are chosen If the effectual call were given to all, here's what we know, all would be saved. If God ushered forth that divine summons to all, then all would be saved. We need to remember that an effectual call for all, because that's what some people believe, and I talk to people like this, if you believe the effectual call is for all, that's tantamount to universalism, which is nowhere taught in Scripture. And so the effectual call is not given to all because all are not justified. Many are called, but few are chosen. And here's the point. I Once again, I don't believe is in your notes, but it's important nonetheless. The effectual call, as I've said earlier, is irresistible. It's utterly irresistible. The great Bible expositor, James Boyce, when he went to be with the Lord as a, as a very young man, Middle aged man, I should say. He went to be with the Lord. R.C. Sproul said that when I heard James Boyce died, I said God was judging America. Never forget that. Dr. Boyce says when God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, he calls effectively, succeeding in his purpose to save us. The grace of God's calling is overwhelmingly efficacious. A good way of expressing this is to say that the Holy Spirit regenerates us, giving us a new nature as a result of which we naturally do what the new nature does. That is, we believe the gospel, we repent of our sin, and we trust in Christ for salvation. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and I promise to be quick now. Look also in verse 30 and highlight the word justified justified. That's the next link in the golden chain of salvation. We have spent literally hours and hours and hours on the doctrine of justification, so we won't labor the point here. But let me just say, one definition that has been helpful for me by R.C. Sproul is this, that justification may be defined as that act by which unjust sinners are made right in the sight of of a just and holy God. We have learned in previous studies that when God justifies sinners, he does not make them righteous. What does he do? He declares them righteous. And when God justifies us, he cleanses us from all our sins, past, present, and future. Justification is a once-for-all action a sovereign action on the part of God. And so once a person is justified, that person will always be justified. Use whatever language you like. Eternal security, once saved, always saved. If you're justified, you will most certainly be glorified, which is the final link in the golden chain of salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I made reference to logic last week. If you don't like logic, you should like it now. Because this is divine, God-centered, irrefutable logic. There's some things in scripture to argue about. We can agree to disagree. This is not one of them. That all those whom God called, he justified, and all those he justified, he also glorified. One theologian refers to glorification as the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises the dead bodies of believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Simply put, when Jesus raised from the dead, our new bodies became a guarantee It was written in stone because Jesus rose from the dead. We too will receive glorified bodies. Ray Ortland says our final redemption is called glorification because sin is not just bad, it is humiliating. Jesus did not just die to make us good. He died to make us great and glorious and conform to the image of his son. As we close, I want to show you a, a diagram that will illustrate last week and and today put together. This is the golden chain of salvation, that God foreknew some. And whoever he foreknew, he predestined. And whoever he predestined, he called. And whoever he called, he justified. And whoever he justified, he glorified. The importance of the golden chain of salvation, in my mind, cannot be Overstated. And so I want to leave with you some practical takeaways as a means of encouragement today. Number one, takeaway number one, remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a direct citation from Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah is a guy who needed to learn the, the really hard lesson. Remember Jonah? That salvation belongs to the Lord. Dr. Stephen Lawson refers to this as. The Continental Divide of Theology. He says this determinative high ground is one's theology of God, man, and salvation. This is the highest of all thought. And it divides all doctrine into two schools. Historically, these two ways of thinking about God and his saving grace have been called by various names. Some have identified them as Augustinianism and Pelagianism. Others have named them Calvinism and Arminianism, but whatever the name, these streams are determined by the continental divide of theology. I think B.B. Warfield says it best, the great Princetonian theologian, when he said, the world should realize with increased clearness that evangelicalism stands or falls with Calvinism. The best way forward is always in a God-centered frame of reference. And such a path by necessity believes and embraces this, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Secondly, the links in this golden chain all hang together. The scriptures clearly teach, and I won't read this verse for you again. We've read it several times. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. All those links hang together. Number three, The lengths of the golden chain fulfill the purpose, we focused on that word purpose last week, it fulfills the purpose of God in his elect. We learned in verse 28 that the purpose of God is eternal, inscrutable, unchangeable, and utterly unstoppable. Unstoppable. And so it stands to reason that the golden chain of salvation reveals how God's purpose comes to pass in the lives of his people. Number four, the golden chain provides assurance for the elect. And so the feedback that I have received over the last few weeks focused on this issue by far more than any other. And basically the feedback I got was, Pastor, I am so encouraged. Why are you encouraged? Because for years, I've struggled with assurance. I've struggled with knowing whether or not my name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And I would say that when you see that each link in the golden chain of salvation hangs together, you see that there is a a guaranteed, a a built-in guarantee for the people of God. And what we learn in the remaining verses in Romans 8, for those of you that have been encouraged by this assurance theme, guess what? It's going to continue until the end of the chapter. This is the reason I love Romans chapter 8. In fact, I don't want to leave Romans chapter 8. Number five, some of you are like, (laughs) you just might not. Number five, the golden chain of salvation finally produces holiness and joy. Holiness and joy. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, says that God has pleasure in election. To know that this is true, to know why it is, is to see another facet of the glory of God, and that sight is the power to make us holy and happy people. Remember to never buy the lie that God wants you to be holy but not happy. Holiness comes with happiness. I'll make this guarantee. If you're a holy person, you will be a happy person. You will be a happy person. We have the chance now, and I want to invite the worship team to come with really an extended time of worship and... I want to encourage you to take this time as the worship team leads us to, to thank the triune God for the salvation that he has extended to us. And I have this thought, and this isn't to make any of you all feel strange at all, but I'm a baseball guy, right? And I remember there was a pitcher in the 80s when, when the manager called his number in the dugout. No one else has done this since, He sprints to the mound. Wouldn't it be cool sometime if we said in the worship team, right, at a response, they all just ran up there. Wouldn't that be cool? That's what's going on in my heart, and I hope the same is going on as yours as well. Let's stand together and sing.